0: You are listening to, but what about Ephraim, the last in our sermon series entitled "Low Roads and High Places," preached at Hokes and Baptist Church in the winter of 2009. And now, Pastor John. Good Welcome to Hokes and Baptist. You're joining us today in the last sermon. Of a of a nine week series we've entitled low Roads and high Places which is a study of uh, the nation of Israel and first Kings. so you're at the end and sorry about that but I can't help that part but I will say I want to I want to kind of start this morning uh, or end this morning the way we started which is with this question <clears throat> what about Ephraim we started. Uh, our series with a question, what about Ephraim? And when we started it that way, what we had in our mind was that... uh, I still got to rearrange my room here. I just have to finally confess I can't talk and move at the same time very well. All right, when uh, we started looking at Israel through this lens of the promises to Ephraim, because it has so much to do, I believe, with some of the ways that uh, Israel just fled from the Lord as they developed their own identity. And the beginnings of this question, what about Ephraim, come from Genesis, the 49th chapter, when Jacob is blessing his sons. He's blessing his 12 sons. And each son is getting a blessing. And as the blessing comes around to two of the sons, something notable is said. All the other ones, it's It's either negative or not that consequential. But two sons really stick out as far as receiving a special prophetic blessing from uh, Jacob uh, from the others. The first one is Judah. Judah receives uh, a blessing from Jacob that sounds something like, it. well, it actually sounds exactly like this. The scepter will not depart from Judah. That's how it's written. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And for, for Christians, we certainly don't have to look very far to see that that blessing has been realized, do we? In fact, uh, during the offertory, the song was singing, You are my friend and you are my brother, even though you are a king, is the line of the song, because we realize that Christ is the king of Judah that, that is being spoken of there. So Judah's the easy one. The hard one is Joseph, because we don't really know that much about Joseph. Uh, we don't talk about Joseph as much. But this is the prophecy that's given to Joseph. It, it, it sounds like this. You will be prince among your brothers. It's kind of, uh, that's a quotation from the prophecy, and that's a a good summary. That Joseph would be prince from among his brothers. Well, as time goes on, the tribe of Joseph gets split up. And not in a bad way, just kind of in a, actually in an administrative way if you want to think of it. When God takes the Hebrew people out of Egypt, and he's taking them in towards the promised land, what he says to them is, you know what, because I've rescued you from Egypt, because my, my angel passed over you uh, uh, during the Passover and did not judge you, because of all these things, I'm going to take from you one tribe for myself. One of the 12 tribes is going to belong to me, and that tribe was the tribe of Levi. And so God takes the tribe of Levi for himself and for his services, and because of that, it leaves us with 11 tribes, and nobody ever writes a book about 11 tribes, so... God, through the providence of God, he orchestrates to reestablish the 12 tribes of Israel by splitting Joseph with his two sons. So Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, become tribes of Israel. And by the time they're in the Promised Land, they're as significant and as real a tribe of Israel as Dan or Issachar or Reuben or Gad or any of the other ones. But Ephraim and Manasseh gain the right of being tribes. Which certainly, if you're going to say, well, what about Ephraim? What about the blessing of Ephraim? There's something in it already, or blessings of Joseph that comes through Genesis, because you see, the tribe of Joseph really got a double blessing, didn't it? Because his both of his sons were apportioned land in Canaan. Well, Ephraim was the preferred son, we should say. He was the uh, one who was more blessed by the Lord, and by the time they enter the promised land. The son Ephraim is beginning to become synonymous with much of the region, but is also kind of first among all the tribes. So when when the Hebrew people enter into Canaan and they take it and they defeat the Canaanites and the other people groups there, and the Lord calls them to meet, right? When they have to go meet, where do they meet? They meet in Ephraim, the land of Ephraim. Where does the Ark of the Covenant of God reside? It typically resides in the land of Ephraim. Where does the tabernacle reside? It typically resides in Ephraim. Where do most of the prophets and the judges typically go to and fro from about? Typically in Scripture, it occurs in Ephraim. And so during this whole time from entering the, the promised land up into the kings, nobody was doubting the fact that God's promise to Joseph was being fulfilled because Ephraim was first among his brothers. And then the kings came, and Judah enters into the story. The Lord makes David king over Israel, and he is from the tribe of Judah. And so now the attention begins to move from Ephraim to Judah. And because David is a good king, he reigns for a long time, and before you know it, The capital city, which used to be, generally speaking, in Ephraim, is moved south to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and that becomes the city of David. And now the capital of the kingdom is in Judah, not Ephraim. And by the time you get to David's son Solomon, even the holy site is now in Judah. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, these holy mountains, the areas of Shechem and Bethel, the areas that used to have significant... Uh, holy merit to the people of Israel all the attention now has shifted south to the temple of Solomon that sits in Jerusalem and Ephraim has nothing now if you were an Ephraimite you would be saying what about Ephraim what about Ephraim where is this promise from Genesis 49 that I would be prince among my brothers well Solomon is a bad king And the Lord remembers Ephraim. And so he selects Jeroboam, and he gives to Jeroboam ten tribes. And he says, these ten tribes will be yours, Jeroboam, if you follow me. And Jeroboam was from the tribe of Ephraim. And so once we get in, we've been asking, what what about Ephraim? And by the time Jeroboam shows up, you see that, that the Ephraimites have significance back. They have power back. What they end up doing is establishing their own capital city, And Jeroboam, determined on holding on to this national identity, begins to foster new things, like a new religion, a new image of God. He casts idols of calves and says, this is your God, this is how you should worship. He creates temples and places of worship, and he establishes rights to worship, all as a way of establishing Israel as its own identity. In fact, Israel becomes known as Ephraim. When you read the prophets, when you read the Psalms, all of these readings you'll see that the, word, the phrase Israel and the phrase Ephraim are used interchangeably all the time because Ephraim simply becomes the representative of statehood for Israel. And in all this, Jeroboam sets a trajectory of worship which marks the beginning of the end of Israel, which is what we'll talk about this morning. Yeah, The Song you just heard is the six opening verses of Psalm 137, which is a psalm of exile, and it sounds like this: "By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? We need to be remember, mindful and remind ourselves that the reason Kings was written was to explain to a people who were in exile, to explain to people who were drinking from rivers in Babylon why they were there all of this account this the, the the painstaking attention that the writers gave into telling us about the actions of the kings and, and and the paths that the kings took is there to help you understand that if you are in exile if you that you can try to answer the question why am I here? what is wrong with my God? why have I been abandoned? why am I exiled from the land? what about the promises of God what about these promises? To Judah and to Ephraim, where is God? And the kings are written to say, you want to know where God is? Well, you need to read about your own history. And so in 2 Kings, we receive a summary. If you would open your Bibles in 2 Kings, there is a summary in 2 Kings of essentially all nine weeks of our study, even more. And those of you who are efficient are wondering why I didn't just preach a one-sermon series on 2 Kings 17, uh, rather than nine weeks. And I think it's because there's a difference between knowing and knowing. And you can read a summary paragraph and think you know, but you really need to read the stories to know. But in 2 Kings, we read this in verse 7, 7 to 18. Speaking of the exile, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices of the kings of Israel had introduced The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From the watchtower to the fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols. Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands, decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants and my prophets. But they would not listen and they were stiff-necked as their fathers. Who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols, and and they themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, Do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God. And they made for themselves two idols cast in the shapes of calves in astropole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. So what about Ephraim? What about Ephraim now? it's pretty hard to say the same thing over and over that much and expect that we would miss the point. But one thing is sure, is Ephraim did not get destroyed by Assyria based on a technicality. Ephraim did not, the nation of Israel, the nation of Ephraim is not going to show up at the judgment seat of the Lord and go, well, I'm here because I didn't celebrate the Passover exactly right. This is not an issue of a technicality. This isn't the issue of somebody wearing a little bit of wool with a little bit of cotton or somebody eating the wrong kind of thing or somebody celebrating the Sabbath not quite right. When you read 2 Kings 17, you realize that that Ephraim is in judgment because Ephraim does not love God. This is not an issue of technicality. This is not an issue of tiny laws, of syntax, of, of the individual cases This is an issue of love. The writers of the Old Testament, when they speak about this, they use a metaphor most often. It's this metaphor of adultery. When the the prophets want to describe to you how Ephraim and Judah have grieved the Lord, you know what they say? They say Ephraim is an adulteress, is what they say. Because they knew you and I can understand that. The Lord says, I loved Ephraim, and Hosea says, I loved Ephraim like a, like a husband loves a wife. I provided for Ephraim. I gave her everything she needed. I protected her borders. I adorned her with wealth. I gave her food. I gave her my affections, and Ephraim turned her affections to other men. That's what it says. It doesn't say, and Ephraim celebrated the Sabbath not quite right. God's not concerned about your accomplishments. He's not concerned about the little things you have done or haven't done. He's not concerned about exactly how you have this certain theological issue quite right all the time. God's question to you is, do you love me? That's God's question. God's question to you is, have you forsaken your affection for me and turned it to someone else? Are you faithful to me like a husband should be faithful to a wife or a wife to a husband? We meet judgment with the question, do you love God? Ephraim was not unfaithful just once. In fact, the, the way the prophets speak is that Ephraim was faithful time, unfaithful time and time and time again. In fact, she didn't simply just turn to one man. She ra- went around the town And was the town harlot? That's the the imagery used in the prophetic writing to let you know of the way God grieves when we turn our affections from him and go somewhere else. And so my question to you is, do you love God? It's not how hard have you worked. It's not how often you've been to church. It's not how much scripture you have memorized. It isn't all the songs you sing. It isn't whether you raised your kids right. It isn't any of that. It isn't what you did wrong. It's none of that. It is, do you love God? God. That's the question. That's the question when you get to the gates, you will very likely be asked, are you a lover of God? And this isn't some kind of sensual, giddy, romantic love that we're going to fall for the cute girl in school. This is the selfless, sacrificing, willful love that makes marriage strong. This is the love that endures and perseveres and gives of itself without expecting anything in return. That's the love that God is talking about. Not does that song make you feel good love, but do you love God? Love. Deuteronomy 6 says this Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus replied, In the 22nd chapter of Matthew, to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So my question to you this morning is, do you love God? Not what you've done. Do you love God? Not what you haven't done. Do you love God? What about Ephraim? Did they love God? <laughs> no, they didn't, and that's why God casts them out of the land. And he does something else, and for time, we, uh, we won't take the time to read it, but I do want to commend to you 2 Kings 17.24 to the end of the chapter. Because it talks about what else occurred there, and that's that the king of Assyria didn't just exile the Jews, he repopulates the land of Israel with many people groups. In fact, it says it here. I'll read you the people groups. It's at uh, verse 24. It says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Katah, Ava, Hamath, Sevafarim, and he settled them there in the towns of Samaria, is what he says. And so what God did is he pulled the Israelites out, all the, he pulled the nation of Ephraim out, and he kind of spread them into other lands, and he pulled other lands and put them here, and that is the way that Assyria maintained peace. Because if you don't love your land so much, you won't be so rebellious. And it worked. Assyria, The Assyrian Empire was very successful in doing this. So successful, in fact, that even as the Israelites returned to Samaria, which is what Ephraim came to be known as, they did not rock the boat. That this land of Ephraim, as the, the, the Jews from Ephraim started to come back over the years, as the Assyrian Empire weaked, Weakened, And as the Babylonians allowed some of them, those who settled in Samaria co-opted and incorporated themselves into all of the religious practices of all the people groups that were already there. It says it right here. Again, I encourage you to read it. But it says, just look at verse 32. They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests. In the shrines and high places. They worship the Lord, but they also serve their own gods in accordance with the custom of the nations from which they had been brought. What happens to Samaria, what happens to Ephraim, is that through the work of the Assyrians, is it becomes this melting pot of diverse religious practice that has no real identity of its own. Everybody brought their gods in, and now it's just kind of time-sharing of divination. And like the pure Jewish blood that used to worship the Lord, the Lord alone, is now kind of mixed in with all these other people groups. And it is that way to this day, is what scripture writes. It remained that way. Kind of a mixed blood way of worshiping. In fact, I find it to be highly ironic. I think the Lord allowed it to be this way. To reflect in reality, in like physical reality, what the Israelites did in spirit. But I think what God did is he said, I am going to mix these people together, mix their blood, mix their associations, mix all of this and let them know that they're no longer purely Jewish in their, in their essence because they have never been Jewish in their heart to me. They have always been worshiping gods from different people groups all the time. Throughout the whole lineage of First Kings, you hear this, stop mixing with other gods. Stop mixing with other people groups. Remain pure, remain holy. But they did not do that. And I think that this is a, an act of irony on the Lord's part, that he makes Samaria so mixed. By the time we get to the New Testament, Samaria is not even really associated with Judaism. No, no Jew in his right mind would ever say he was a Samaritan. And no Samaritan would ever presume that he's a Jew. They, they, were, they were, as far as they were concerned, different people. The, the tribe of Judah, which is where we get the word Jew, had preserved the pure bloodline. They, they went south. They were wicked. They got exiled, but they learned from it in many ways. When Judah comes out of exile, the southern kingdom, they do not make the mistakes that they made before they went into exile. They were idolaters before Babylon took them into exile. When they come back, Judah never again struggles in any real way with idolatry. They have their own different struggles. I'm not saying that they had it fig- figured out. But they learned. Because when they were in exile, they were doing things like writing Psalm 137. And writing First and Second Kings. And wrestling with this, what about Judah? What about Ephraim? Where is God? Why would he do this? And they were realizing that God has done this to us because we have not loved God. We have abandoned him so he has Abandon us. But By the time you get to the New Testament period, the Samaritan, which is kind of the Christ age version of Ephraim, is just a mixed blood, mixed religion, synchronized kind of deluded way of worshiping. And Judah has become hyper attentive to purity. By the time Christ is here, we have sects like the Essenes and the Pharisees who are extremely in tune with? We will get this right. In Judah, they're going to get it right. Finally, they're going to get it right. There's these these movements, these big, these very influential movements, like the Pharisees that say, "When the Messiah comes now, he we, we will prepare the place for the Messiah to come." Let's say it that way. We will live such holy lives that our Messiah will return and come and save us from this oppression and from this this. Uh, Political slavery we endure. That that was their thought is, we will be ready this time. That was the mindset of of the people in Judah. The Jews. We will be ready. We will do what's right. And then Christ came. And did he say they're ready? No. He said you're not ready. Judah was so busy purifying its blood, making sure they're doing exactly the right thing, focusing on the technicalities. And Christ shows up and says, but you still do not love me. You still do not love the Father. The, the way that the, the Hebrew people after the exile tried to solve this problem of why they went into exile is we will take God's law seriously. We will take each line of it and just in process it. We'll make sure we tithe exactly the right mount. Make sure we celebrate the new moons and the Sabbaths and the special holidays in just the right way. And if we do that just right, the Messiah might just come and save us. But Christ com- comes and he says, you have it all wrong. You cannot purify yourself. Your blood is tainted. There is no way to purify your blood. The Hebrew people thought if they purify their blood enough the Christ would come and it would, Christ would be for them. Christ is for the Hebrews. Christ is for the Jews. Christ is for those who are holy and sacred. That was their thought. But Jesus says, no, I have come that all might have life and have in the fullest. In fact, there's this one day where Jesus has to go from Judea, which is in the southern half of the kingdom, to, to Galilee, which is in the northern half of the kingdom. And you know what he does? He has to walk through this region known as Samaria. And he's on this walk through Samaria. This is in John chapter 3. And he sits down, because he's tired, and he sits down at a well in Samaria. And there's a woman at the well, and he says to the woman, can I have something to drink? Now listen to what the woman says. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because the scripture's right, Jews do not associate with Samaria. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus seems pretty unconcerned about her blood. And so she and Jesus continue to visit, and Jesus essentially shares the gospel with her, and this woman becomes the first missionary to the Samaritans. She runs into this town and she goes to find her family and everybody she knows and she's, she's, she's getting them to come out. Come out and meet this man. He's told me everything about my life that I've ever, I've ever done wrong. He's, he's certainly a, a prophet of some kind. And while she's doing that, the disciples are coming back from town with dinner and they kind of like, watch her running into town. And, you know, what's going on? They don't know how to quite reconcile the fact that Jesus would associate with a Samaritan because Jews are ready. Jews have done everything they're right. Jews are deserving of Christ the Samaritans, what about Ephraim? And so they don't know, quite know what to say. And finally, one of them says, Jesus, do you want something to eat? Are you hungry? And Jesus says this My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, Four months more and then harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields for they are ripe for harvest. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it this way. He's looking at Peter and James and John and Nathaniel, and he's saying, guys, what about Ephraim? Huh? What about Ephraim? You cannot be ready for Christ. You can do nothing in your life that makes you suitable for him to come into your life, God is not waiting for you to get right. God is just waiting for you. And we have this attitude of, if I get right, then I'll get God. And I'm here to say this morning, you cannot purge the blood from your body that is tainted. In fact, when Christ comes, he says something like this. He says, I offer you a new covenant of my blood, is what Jesus says. This is a covenant in my blood. The only purity that comes is from the blood of Christ in our lives. And it doesn't matter no matter how ready you think you are, no matter how pure Jewish you may be, or or no matter how Samaritan you you think you are, God has gone beyond Samaria to reach us. In fact, in in Acts 1.8, it says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and into the ends of the world. God's concern for us is to purify what we cannot purify on our own. You are not ready for Christ. You can do nothing to ready yourself for Christ. You cannot make yourself acceptable without Jesus. I thank God that he asked, what about Ephraim? I thank God that he made the gospel of Christ available to Gentiles. It is not often that we we think about that. We just take it for granted now. But to me, the fact that God opened the gospel to Gentiles is the the most significant sign that is a gospel of grace. For if we had to be ready, we would never certainly have received good news.